Welcome to the Modern Warrior Podcast. I am your host, Gavin Meenan, and on this podcast, I will be speaking to inspirational individuals who specialize in the field of physical and mental health to offer you the tools that you need to become a stronger, healthier, and more confident man in today's world. Welcome to episode number 74 with Joshua Winner. Joshua is an entrepreneur, veteran, filmmaker, and emotional resilience expert. He has spent the last 20 years growing companies, maximizing human potential, and is the founder of Emotional Resilience Training. He's also the co-founder of K4 and Valor. His curriculum and frameworks are being used to help men, first responders, veterans, and medical professionals who deal with high stress and trauma to reintegrate back into life. Prior to his current work, Joshua was on an elite team of five of the top trainers and speakers to train Fortune 100 companies while working for Tony Robbins. Joshua is currently in post-production of his film, Grief to Grace, a personal story of how he turned the pain of his brother's loss into meaning and purpose, including interviews of 22 experts in the fields of grief and trauma. The film is expected to be released in January 2023. So Joshua, one of the first things that struck me when I seen your Instagram page was trauma-informed and I was quite intrigued by that. Could you tell us why that's part of your bio on your Instagram and perhaps why it's been such a significant part of your life and your journey here? Yeah, happy to. And uh, happy to be here sharing this message. And Great you know, I think what trauma informed means is that I'm, I'm very aware of the nervous system. I'm very aware of how our body reacts to uh, certain trauma-based uh, things that show up in our life. And uh, so being trauma-informed means I'm understanding of the language. I understand the tools. Um, this is something that I'm very proactively aware of and using in the coaching that I do, the programs that I teach, uh, the message that I'm putting out there. So that's um, a, a lot of times the trauma-informed is used to, and now it's spreading. Trauma is becoming a much more wide used conversation, but for a long time, it wasn't. And um, so I think, I think it's, it's the observation that there's big T trauma and there's little T trauma. Big T trauma is a lot of the things we think of like very traumatic, you know, rape, abuse, um, you know, like, like some of the big T traumas that we go, oh, that was trauma. And then there's little T trauma. And those are the areas that are a little bit sneaky because they're not looked at as trauma in our society. But you start to, uh, if you can understand that, it starts to show you why we do what we do. And it starts to understand how our identities are formed. A lot of times our addictions, the ways we numb, the ways we avoid, the ways we self-sabotage. Even if you haven't had any big T trauma, being trauma-informed, you can start to be able to understand what's at the root of that and what is causing the body to go into the back of your brain, which is that reactionary place, which is that nervous system response to survival. And if you can understand it, you can get to the root of that and start to rebring re yourself back online or come back to life again through a different lens. Uh, but it takes awareness. It takes new skills and developing, really learning how to work with your nervous system and your body. And so that's where trauma informed came from. And it's been really dear to me because I've gone on this long journey of, you know, being raised in warrior culture, sports, athletics, military hunting, um, which was very much like put your emotions in the box and get the job done. And more traditional, you know, men that you're looked at is what a masculine man is. And, um, and I was really good with trauma. I had a lot of trauma. I had a lot of death. I had a lot of horrific shit happen. And I was like, ah, put in a box, mobilize, get the shit done. Didn't really affect me that deeply until I had an experience with my brother where my brother came to ask me for help. Um, he said, Hey man, I've gotten hooked on heroin. I'm shooting needles. Like I need to come live with you. Or I'm going to die. And at the time I was like, Hey man, I got a startup company. I got computers everywhere. Like, like handle your shit, you know, I'll help you, but I can't do it. You know? And then three days later he went and died of a heroin overdose. And that that's really what kind of kicked off my, something I couldn't quite fix everything else I could fix, or at least I thought I could fix. 
And that was the first thing that I couldn't. So it took me down this long journey of trying to understand and heal something that, or try to fix something. Cause that was my mindset then, um, that wasn't fixable. And so I think the, the long compressed version of where I'm at now with it is I just had one tool. I had a hammer and I was used to using a hammer for everything. And I had to learn like, Oh, you know, what requires a hammer? What may require a, a screwdriver? What, what are the different tools that I may need to use per situation? And how do I learn to be more adaptable to different tools, different awareness and different things. And so that's what brought me back to get back to life again, was actually going into my pain and trauma and actually accepting the parts of life I couldn't fix, which is really hard, especially for that stoic masculine identity. It's like, you're going into the no-go zone and it's really messy and you have to go in there and make sense of it all. And so, but in doing so, I actually got brought back to life again. And so I'm really passionate about, you know, understanding where somebody's at, where they need to go and helping them get there. Uh, what is the map and the plan to get there? And I call it emotional resilience. So that's my language or my framing that I use is emotional resilience training because the emotional resilience gives you awareness of what's going on emotionally in your body. And then the training is the repetition. You have to do it over and over again to build awareness and some new habits and practices that move you out of that reactionary state into a more regulated state so you can make new choices. Yeah. One thing that you mentioned there was, uh, was quite a contradiction, um, was that you were quite good with trauma. You put it in the box and you put it and you, and you put it away, which is exactly what you shouldn't do. Is that right? Or yeah, well, I'd say, is, is, I there, guess time, what is there a time and a place to put in a box and put it away and then to take it back out again? Or what's your sort yeah. of attitude? Great, great, great question. Yeah. I, I look, I tend to look at the lens through the archetypes. And there's these four primary masculine archetypes, a king, lover, warrior, magician. And the archetypes give us, they're a master map and the map teaches us who do we need to be for what situation. So when I was in sports, when I was in athletics, when I was in the military, when I was deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom, when I was on mission, it's not useful to be in your emotions because if, if I'm sitting there in my emotional state, I can't actually achieve the mission. So the training is done very well to actually get your job done. And you can't be in your emotions to focus on mission. However, if you don't address those at some point, um, then that's like the issues are stored in the tissues. And it's almost like if you push something down, it becomes like a pressure cooker. And then at some point that pressure cooker builds up and then it blows. And when it blows, that's when we're highly reactive and we're, we can tend to destroy the things in our life that are sacred to us. And a lot of that is our, our essentially our, our trauma is bleeding out all over the place on all the things we hold sacred to us. So uh, I'd say there's definitely a time and a place for it. So learning how to be highly emotional resilient is, is the discernment and awareness to be able to understand one, your nervous system, because there may be a time when you need to show up and get the mission done. And if you're, you know, you need to protect your family. Uh, there's something going on where you need to make quick decisions, step into that warrior, let's call it archetype, which is quick, makes quick decisions. Uh, it moves into action. It sets really strong boundaries. It's more of a black and white approach of like, yes and no black and white. Give me quick information so I can go handle the mission and take action. Very, very useful in, in certain situations. However, a lot of times when you're dealing with your emotions or you're dealing with your spouse, or you're dealing with your kids or you're dealing with an addiction, or you're dealing with these other things, that same approach, uh, at some point, your body starts to break down because you're living in a hypervigilant state. So you're living in this kind of continual state of put it in a box, put it in a box, put it in a box. And what happens is your nervous system is essentially in a high stress fight or flight state when you're in that state. And if you're under there for too long, you get what's called hypervigilance, which just basically means you're running on high for too long. And so the body will try to regulate itself to keep you in balance, which that could look like, imagine if you're really high for too long, hypervigilant, you're constantly on alert for threat. You're constantly looking for like how to keep everybody safe, how to survive essentially. At some point, you're going to need to come down a little bit. And that's when anything that'll take you down from, you know, drugs, alcohol, could even be porn, um, different things like that will try to take you down and Additionally, if you stay hypervigilant for too long, at some point you blow your cortisol levels. And when you blow, you crash. And then the crash from that place, you're trying to get back up again because that feels like death, especially if you've been used to living in hypervigilance. Like just the resilient zone 
feels uncomfortable, but if you crash, that feels like death. And so you'll do high risk behavior. That's when, uh, even if you look at, let's say a porn addiction, which I had, um, when I, and we can go into that at some point, but, but for me, when I finally developed a lot of awareness and tools around it, I realized that was my body trying to protect myself and regulate myself. So when I would crash, I would use it to come back up again, because what happens? Heart starts beating faster. Your temperature increases all the signals of being in a, in a fight or flight or sympathetic state, which puts you into that state is what my body was trying to regulate. So uh, I would say a lot of the things, if there's a man listening that maybe wants, like, how do you apply this? Maybe he struggles with an addiction that for some reason he doesn't want to eat the food or drink the alcohol or take the drug or use porn, yet he does it anyway. And he's like, how is it that I say no, but I do it anyway? Or spend. Guys that are wanting to save their money and invest their money, but for some reason they always spend it. It's another trauma response. Or work workaholism, where guys are like just so busy, they always go back to work. And so a lot of these things are coping mechanisms to that trauma. And so uh, a way for a man listening to identify if he's been living in hypervigilance too long is there's an area of his life that he tends to probably destroy or let's call it pollute the waters. And it's done in a reactionary state. He either gets angry or blows up and destroys his spouse, or he does it to his kids, or he does it to himself, or he has these addictions or kind of hidden things that he's hiding from the world because he can't align himself to go, well, how come I say this, but I do it anyway. And, and that's a good example of somebody who needs to develop, I would call it their lover archetype, which is their ability to feel messy emotions like grief and sadness and heartbreak and rage and allow those things to run through him to come back into homeostasis. So really the map of the archetypes teach us who do we need to be for what situation. And we need to be somebody very different to show up and have intimacy connection with our spouse or our kids, or even ourselves to know what we're actually our intuition, what we're feeling, uh, than it is to be, let's call it on mission. And it's very different to, you know, be building a business plan or maps or strategies, which would be more like magician house, like alchemy, right? Uh, or, or in addition, the king house would be like expressive and very communicative, right? And lots of ideas. So each one gives us a different map of who we need to be in order for each situation, because it's really those that are the most adaptable or it's survival of the most adaptable, not the fittest. That's who actually survives as a species. So for me, it's just very grounded and practical. It's learning new sets of tools, learning to become highly aware of the nervous system, which really looks like a tree. Like if you look at the nervous system placed over the body, it's like this big tree trunk with roots going all the way through it. And its whole goal is to keep us alive. So what's counterintuitive to most of us is the things that are actually we struggle with are the actual parts keeping us regulated and on track because we found a way to do it because we didn't have resiliency protocol. We didn't have resiliency practices. We didn't have awareness. So that really is the way is learning new tools, developing new awareness um, and learning how to become highly aware of the nervous system how to identify when you're in an activated state is what the language I use and how to regulate yourself to come back online. Cause you make totally different decisions. Cause you're in a different part of the brain. When you're in a reactive state, you're in this Hulk brain or the reptilian part of the brain, which is very much reactionary. It's what keeps it. Well, it's what makes our heartbeat. It's what allows us to breathe. It, it's all of our regulatory functions that we don't have to think about. It just does it because it's there to keep us in survival. So when we get highly activated, we move to that, which is a survival response. And the key is as humans, we have to learn how to go to this part of our brain, which is, which is the last thing to come online around 25, 26. It's, it's the prefrontal cortex and it's essentially compassion, empathy, and executive function. So if we're able to identify when we're here and move to here, this is really the sweet spot of learning how to choose how do we want to respond versus reactionary responses. Yeah, man, thank you so much for that in-depth analysis and information and i think there's a there does seem to be missing link because often when there's men struggling with mental health when you think mental health you think oh it's 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 a mind thing it's it's something in the head but there is of course a, a massive link from the mind to the body and of course this is where a lot of illnesses and a lot of diseases and a lot of breakdowns happen it, it, it begins uh, from the head transfers into the body that right so yeah so so uh so powerful and as i said thank you for the the in-depth because i was smiling there a few times when you were speaking because you were speaking to my formal self there and especially when when you explain the development of the prefrontal 
cortex and developing compassion and sympathy and empathy for others and for ourselves. Yeah. Um, I eventually got there at about 35, not 25, I think. So it took me a while. So, uh, me too. I, yeah. So hey, I'm in that same boat with you. I'm right there with you. I'm speaking to my former self too, cause I'm walking right with you and just recently learned these over the last 10 years. So it's a, it's a, it's a journey. Yeah. Yeah. The journey perhaps began at 25, but it, yeah, it, it, t- it takes a long time to get there. I just wanted to go back because something you mentioned there was of course, uh, putting the trauma in boxes and, and, and storing it away. And what I gather is that that's how you've been dealing with trauma right up until the point of your brother's death, possibly. And at that point, you had so many boxes stored up and that was like the one big heavy box that you had put away, um, but eventually began to weigh you down. And imagine now, I've, I've heard you talk about the story on several of the podcasts and it wasn't as if your brother died and passed away and, and then you thought, okay, oh, actually, you know what? I need to go and deal with this. You, it didn't happen that way. Can you just mm-hmm. talk us through the process there in terms of what happened afterwards? Because um, uh, I can't imagine what you went through, but um, it must have been so difficult. But you, again, it was in a box, stored away, but it came back. And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great question. And, I, you know, for me, I was so in the warrior mindset when it first happened. I think the day I found out I cried cause I, you know, I got, I heard the news and then I literally, I remember like that moment where I was like, okay, I got to go handle things. So I literally like intentionally was like, got to put this in a box. I got to go back and lead the service and take care of my family and, and like handle shit. Cause everybody was a mess. And so I intentionally put it in a box, went back, did the service. And then I came back and I just, kept that in a box and went to work. And, and that was my coping strategy was I'm going to build this company. And so the company that I was building, I put all my energy and focus into the company and I did grow it. And we were right on the verge of being what I would consider successful. And then 2008 hit the economy crashed and the company went from doing 150,000 months or whatever we were doing, something over hundred to 30,000 and then 25,000 and 20,000. And it was rapidly crashing. And then I came home one day to find my business partner and my girlfriend, who we were all living together, were hooking up. So it was like this increased betrayal from the buddy that I'd spent two years building a company with, who was my best friend at the time, the girlfriend that I was with. And so in one moment, I lost business, best friend, girlfriend. I'd funded the company on credit cards and had to go through a bankruptcy. And so I was sitting there in this like really massive, difficult place. And still, I used my old hammer, right? So, so I was like, all right, what's the solution to this? I didn't send in any of the story. I just said, okay, put it in a box, get rid of everything in my name. I gave, you know, a bunch of our, whatever was left to like charities and tried to clean up the energy. And then I was like, who's the best in the world. I'm going to go beat him. That was my initial strategy. And I went to go work with Tony Robbins as a speaker and trainer. Uh, there's only five of us that traveled the country speaking. So I did that. I also did a bunch of plant medicine because I was in some and a lot of pain. So I did a lot of plant medicine ceremonies. I went to work with shamans and some forgiveness helped. And I thought I healed. I, I did some forgiveness work and I'm like, oh, I fixed it. And then I used all Tony strategies, which are primarily focused around NLP and hypnosis, which are very much mind focused. So I would identify the stories that I had. Um, I would identify the meaning that I'd made that to mean, and I would change them. So I would notice when I was in a shitty state, I'd put myself in a resourceful physiological state. And then I would go get the result. And then I would also identify the story that wasn't working and change the meaning. So I was, I was using the strategies, but what I didn't realize at the time is I was disassociating from my body instead of feeling the grief and the sadness and going into it, I dissociated that was wrong and it meant I was broken and I needed to fix it. And so I was so focused on, I'm going to solve this. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to handle this, that I was obsessed with it. And I thought I did it. I literally thought I've solved this. This doesn't affect me anymore. I'd rebuilt my life. And, um, I was really just unaware that I'd become an empty shell is, is essentially what I'd become is this empty shell and using all these tools to fix it. And I thought I had, I just fixed feeling (laughs) and I'd rewired myself to not feel anything. And so I thought I was good, but really I just couldn't feel anything from like the neck down. And I believe your purpose keeps coming back to you. And I kept getting the desire to work with people that were in grief and, and suffering. And so I volunteered at the VA 
Um, and I did a lot of work and I started getting on grief forums like, oh, let me help people who are struggling because I have all the answers. I can help you fix your pain. And I learned really quickly, like I didn't have the tools, one, I didn't know what I was doing too. And such a, like an intense subject, you can't just fumble around. Like if this is people that are in intense mourning and pain, because I was going after very difficult situations thinking that I could fix it. And so I went to start to interview and I was like, well, maybe I don't know. Let me understand this. And so I started researching grief and I started saying, well, maybe what, what do I need to understand? And along that journey, it was very confusing because I found researchers that had one side of very much like you're naturally resilient. You need to do nothing. You need antidepressants after two weeks. If you still have any of these problems to the other side, which is really what started to land with me is I started interviewing other professionals in the grief, grief space that had spent 20 years with families from 9-11 and Boston bomb bombings and Sandy Hook shootings. And they were so loving and so in their heart. Um, and they, yet they had so much pain and I could feel the pain. And there was this man named Ken Druck, who has now become a good friend of mine, who, when I was interviewing him, learning this, I actually hired a film crew and I started, I started a documentary and I started interviewing all these grief and trauma experts, started with grief experts. But when I was interviewing him, it just landed in my core. There was this moment when the, the way he described it is, is essentially in allowing yourself to accept the parts of life that you can't fix, like in actually accepting those parts is actually how you come back into wholeness. And it was my resistance. It was my wanting to fix something that anything, which is a lot of personal development is like, you're not broken, you're whole, you need to fix, like there's a solution or there's a fix, or I can fix this in an hour. And so our obsession with fixing it, we don't want any of the messy stuff, like get all that messy stuff out of the way. Let me just focus on what's clean and easy. Uh, that actually was what I had been doing. And he brought this very loving, very supportive, very powerful approach of like, the only way out is through. Like the only way you manage through this is to go through it and to accept the parts of life you can't fix and, and to accept the heartbreak and in actually allowing yourself to feel that heartbreak is the feeling of feeling broken, which is what we're typically resistant to is like, oh, I'm not broken, but actually accepting, oh, the broken is heartbreak. I'm deeply heartbroken. I'm in deep grief and sadness and I feel that heartbreak. And so in allowing myself to actually like, feel that because before then it was like, nope, I'm just going to fix it. And he introduced this concept that I couldn't not look at, which was like, the only way out is through it. I have to feel and accept this and love the parts that I can't fix and love the parts that are heartbroken and love the parts that feel broken to me. And it was messy. I was on like a two-year journey after that, where all of a sudden everything in those boxes came up from um, the sadness and grief around my brother to past relationships, to all kinds of stuff that I'd fixed supposedly that were gone, that was still there started to coming up and I had to just sit in it and I didn't have any tools at the time. So I was really heavy. Um, and I still was using a lot of addictions. I was using porn, alcohol, food. I was still workaholism, right? So the outside world, I looked good, but internally I was kind of a mess. And, uh, but I was allowing myself to feel and feel sadness. I still couldn't really cry and emote some of those emotions, but I was allowing myself to feel and actually except like, oh, this is still here. And can I love through this? Can I love anyway? Can I feel this and, and allow that to be okay? Can I accept that I feel heartbroken and grief and sadness and not try to fix it? Can I just love it? And in, in doing that for this two-year period, again, because I was on my own, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have anybody walking me through or walking with me. But at the end of those two years, one day I woke up and I was like, it was actually I had a cat die. And I had this moment that my cat, I was rushing my cat around everywhere to every like veterinarian and trying to fix him at all costs. And, and one day I sat there and I looked at him and I caught myself. I was like, oh, the numbing is not why, ask why not the addiction, but why the pain would be Gabo Mate's work. And I was like, oh, this means I'm, the addiction means I'm in pain. Cause I would typically shame myself and beat myself up when I would use porn, alcohol, food, and then I would repeat it. And then it would become this vicious cycle. And for the first time I was like, oh wait, what's going on in here? Can I allow myself to feel what's going on? And it was uncomfortable. I sat there and like laid on the floor and grieved and wailed. And I was like, my cat's gonna die. And I don't want this. And I was sad and like that whole, which to me would sound wallowing in my old mindset, like the, the wallower. So there was a lot of judgment on it at the time, but I allowed myself to go there. 
And in doing so, it reconnected me into my heart. I felt connected to the present moment. And I was like, oh, he's going to die. And I was able to like take him to the beach and I stopped taking him to hospitals. And I'm like, oh, let me just be present with him while I got a couple of days left and took him to the beach, took him to like all this, like hikes, all this weird shit. But for me, it was my form of being present with him through that end stage and did a very like a ceremony in my house where somebody came over to put him to, to put him to sleep and transition. And, and then after that, I felt better. And I was like, wow, like for the first time, instead of going to the fix, I actually went into the pain. I actually learned to love the pain, if you will, and express the pain. And it actually brought me the peace I'd been searching for when I was searching for the external. I'd been searching for, oh, if I make more money, then I'll feel better. Oh, if I get my body in better shape, then I'll feel better. If I get this woman that I'm desiring, then I'll feel better. And I would get the thing and I wouldn't feel better. So I thought it would have to be the next, well, I got to get a hotter woman or I got to get, I got to make more money or I got to do like, so it was all external focused of achievement and it was empty. And for the first time, actually going into my pain, allowing that all to be okay, I actually felt peace. And I was like, oh, this is what I was searching for of like freedom, peace. Uh, and I was able to get it the opposite way. And that's what really was like, okay, now let me go really deep in understanding that. And that's what changed my whole trajectory of like, oh, what do I need to learn as a new set of tools? And that's how I started to build the emotional resilience framework of like, oh, what tools do I need to develop awareness of what's a situation I can fix and what's a situation I can't? The ones that I can't, how do I identify those? And what do I need to do to be with those? Like how, what is a screwdriver? You know, Because if you take a hammer to a nail, you can hit it sideways, you can hit it a bunch of times and the nail just bends. But if you take a hammer to a screw, you break the screw. So like, how do I identify what is a nail and what is a screw and what do I need a hammer for? And what do I need a screwdriver for? And in that example, the screwdriver would be what I would call a stage four uh, emotional trauma event, which is something we can't fix. All we can do is accept it, love it and learn to be with it. Um, and then there's a whole set of tools and frameworks around that of how we learn to be with that. That's different for each person of, of making peace with that. But that's really what dove me into this field. And it started with grief and then it moved into trauma because I, I believe at least my belief system from studying so much grief is I believe the root of it all is heartbreak. And, and I believe the root of it all is sadness or anger or something we fell deeply in love with. It could have been a dream. It could have been our innocence. It could have been this thing that we fall in love with. And then we're, we lose that. And that heartbreak is the root of it, but the heartbreak then becomes for long periods of time becomes the trauma, right? So even if you look at heavy traumatic situations, somebody lost their innocence or even in rape cases, somebody took their innocence and betrayed them, but there was a heartbreak on, I thought people were good and I thought people were this, and then they betrayed me or they took my innocence. And so there's an anger, but there's really beneath those layers, there's a deep heartbreak, a deep sadness. And so for me, that's the root of all of it is, is the grief work. And then the layers on trauma work is really learning the nervous system. And that's what gives us awareness to really start to understand, okay, is this a, like, I have four stages I created. So like, is this a one, two, three, or four, right? Is this a, a one, which would be like a, like a bruise or an abrasion or like a blister. Okay. I could kind of ignore that. And I get back my hand, my hand's not a big problem. It may be painful, but I can hammer through it. But if I wear gloves, it's much easier to do my job and I can recover quickly. You know, think of like a level two would be like a, like a sprain, right? Sprain, you're out for six weeks. You're slow, even if it's a bad sprain, right? You're, you're walking on crutches or something like that. But if you do the work and you can, again, the one and the two you do on your own, you don't need somebody to help you. You don't need a doctor. You don't, you can do those on your own, but after about six weeks, you're back in action. You can fix it. Think of a level three is like a break and it could be either a severe break, like shattered legs, or even just a broken femur or a broken bone. And the difference with the three is you do, you do need help. You do need support. So you need, you can't fix your, you can't set your leg on your own. Somebody needs to build the cast and you're going to be down for maybe three months, six months, you know, within the cast that you're slow, angry, frustrated, lethargic. And then you cut the cast off and you got another three to six months where you're in rehab and you're rehabilitating and you're going slow again, rebuilding. And so that concept could take six months to a year in totality of a level three but eventually you're able to fix it and fully come back to life. Um, and then level, think of a level four is like an amputation, the loss of a leg. Like you're, 
no matter what you do, your leg's not coming back. So you're going to have to accept fully like my way, the dream I had before of let's say walking and doing all the things I had is gone. However, I can still live a full fulfilled life just as good as last time. If I can fully accept this, learn to be, be loving and compassionate and gentle with myself when I have tough days and be really resourceful. Like, okay, what can I do? There's prosthetics. There's a bunch of things I can do to get back in the game of life and live fully, but I have to be willing to accept it because if I'm in conflict with what happened, then I'm stuck in the pain uh, consistently. So, so for me, the levels help me understand is where am I at and what can I fix and what can I fit? What can't I fix? And there's different tools for fixing than there is for accepting. And I think that's more where the landscape, how I see grief and trauma, but it all for me originates from heartbreak and grief. And then there's just the prolonged extended periods are what I see as trauma and the nervous system. My actual definition of trauma is um, the body's reaction to a real or perceived threat to our physical or emotional well-being. So it's the body's reaction. So if I went through a traumatic experience in my, or even a grief or a heartbreak, but my body interprets that as a threat to my physical or emotional well-being, then the way my body, my nervous system reacts to that is in a survival response. So my ability to identify what's going on, learn how to regulate myself, which again is moving from here to here, I can now decide, is this a traumatic experience or do I just need to learn new tools to, to navigate the situation? And sometimes there's a fix that, hey, I need to go find a doctor to set my leg because it's a break. And if I heal the break, I can actually come back stronger. And I think from just our, our conversation before, this is where a lot of men struggle is we tend to move from a one, two, and then we jump, we skip the three and go right to a four. We just amputate. We're like, ah, it's easier to amputate than it is to heal and fix. And then we repeat the pattern. We attract the same partners. We attract unhealthy business partners or relationships. We continue to self-sabotage because we haven't hacked, we haven't fixed the break. We just amputate it. So identifying like, Hey, and it can be community. It could be working with somebody in men's work. It could be built, joining a men's work community. It could be a lot of other areas, but if we get the proper support and training, we can actually come back stronger than we ever were. And so just, there's a lot in there, right? There's a lot of yeah. messy things, but how do we navigate the messy in a very pragmatic way? I think for men, we need like maps and tools. How do I navigate this? Give me the map, give me the tool and let me solve this. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite powerful. It's something you mentioned there as well. There was um, feeling numb or certainly shutting down your feelings. Mm-hmm. And you did mention when you were speaking about that shame. And I do believe that that's what holds a lot of men back from actually feeling because to feel there is a lot of shame attached to that because going back to whatever childhood conditioning or hardened fathers. And if you showed some emotion or if you expressed an anger or sadness, you were somewhat punished or you were criticized for it. And then you're made to believe that that expression of anger or sadness or grief as a child is wrong or bad. And, you know, it's, you can't be loved if you show this, it's Gabra Mate's work, as you know. So how did you, navigate beyond that shame in order to get in touch with your feeling because it's something that again when you're when you're talking about all this it's like yeah that, that's me that's me that's me and at the same time a lot of men listen to this are actually in this situation right now where they don't feel where they feel numb I've, I've had a number of guys when they started a program with me telling me that they can't feel anything they're numb and as well as in my own journey Whenever I was going through this process, my wife would often remark and say, it's like you, it's like you have no feelings, Gavin. I mean, is there, is there something wrong with you that you can't feel something? And I had to take that on board and really ask some serious questions of myself. And then, as I said, yeah, I was restricting myself from actually feeling I was the fixer, not the, not the feeler. So how did you, I, I know you sort of spoke, spoke to us about your process of actually getting in touch with your feelings and you're doing it on your own. But for someone now who's sort of in that dynamic or caught in that trap as such, in terms of the mind is detached from the body, how do you start in that process? Yeah, great question. And I'll also say, hey, this is a journey I'm still on. I'm not, it's yeah. not like I'm there yet, right? Like I'm still in deep therapy. I'm constantly taking more somatic classes. I'm constantly learning new tools. I just took a, a transformational chair work class, uh, you know, so um, 
it's still an ongoing process. That was just my first experience a decade ago, which launched me into this, but it's been relentless journey uh, to understand it. And I, I was very similar. I was numb. Uh, so that was my experience of being numb. And I was even numb up until, I mean, that one experience with my cat, but besides that, I, I mean, I go through a breakup and not feel a thing, you know, I'd go through traumatic stuff and, but I could cry during movies. And that was what was confusing. I'm like, why do I cry? The only place I would cry is movies and nowhere else. And so there was just a, I couldn't figure it out. And um, what really started helping is doing somatic based work because uh, what I learned about me specifically is uh, the way I coped with my, let's call it childhood trauma is I would go to here or I would go to here. Like I would release to, to avoid it. And I attached to an object. So I would attach to porn, the feminine to avoid feeling. I would just release the energy or I would go to here to understand it. And I, that's where the maps and tools and framework. So part of why I've gotten really good at what I'm doing is because I have maps and tools. It's also been a way that I've, I've hidden behind it. And so uh, for me, what the practice was is doing somatic based work where I would actually go in and sit with the numbness. And so uh, I was actually in Gabor Mate's nine month um, compassionate and inquiry course, and you do repetition every week. And uh, a lot of it is similar to what I would do in my shadow work and similar to what I would do in my men's work programs, but just a different, I'd never done it through Zoom. And so we'd sit on Zoom calls and somebody just witnessed me and go, go there and say, you know, where, like, let's be, and I'd say, it's all numb. And, I, and they'd say, okay, well, let's be with the numbness. Can you just be with the numbness for a little bit? And then I would sit and feel the numbness. I describe the sensation of the numbness. And then once I allowed myself to be with that numbness, then I could feel what was underneath it. And that's when really, I'd say the last two to three years has been the hardest work because once like the numbness was a protector, that was what was protecting me from feeling all my emotion. And I built that as a little kid to go, oh, if unconsciously, if I go numb, I can't feel so I can survive. And so that came on as an adaptation or an, a protector side of me to protect me from feeling so that I could survive in some heavy trauma situations. So, which I forgot about, by the way, I'd forgotten some traumatic childhood shit that had happened because I just bypassed that. And so, in the box. Um, so yeah, so sitting in that, and then I could, was able to feel and underneath it was so much anxiety, so much um, irritability, like this wave of like, oh, wow, no wonder I go numb because this is way too much. I don't even know what to do with this. And so that's been my journey of once I could feel the layers beneath that, um, that was um, probably the last two years was realizing I, I, my survival protocol was to put myself in high stress situations to achieve. And if I put myself in these high stress situations, that's where I was most alive, but I was also hiding behind it that I couldn't see. So what would happen is I would create pressure like think of it as just pressure, pressure, pressure. And then I would create more and more pressure. And then that pressure was why I would ultimately need to regulate through porn because I was creating way too much pressure to deal with. That was my coping strategy it was workaholism was my avoidance, if you will, to that pressure. And then because I had that, it would go to porn. And then the porn was my pressure relief valve. And so those two were linked up so strong. And so I think even the reason I started this is I didn't even realize I had a porn addiction through so many relationships. And then one day I'm always looking at growing and was like, one day I was like, Oh, porn. I was like, Oh, let me stop this for a month. And then I couldn't. And it was like the first thing that I've always, that I've ever been like, because I've done water fast. I like, I pride myself on doing hard shit. And so it was the first time that I was like, I can't, I can't stop. And then I had so much shame, the fact that I would go back there. And that that's been probably a four and a half or five year journey where I've been in accountability groups. I've been, in, I've been leading accountability groups that, everybody else or large majority of the guys would immediately quit porn and have this great thing. And I would still be struggling, even though I'd be leading the group. And then I'd feel shameful and I'd feel like a fraud and I'd feel like, what the fuck I'm leading this group and I can't solve it. And I was so hard on myself. Um, and so what the work did is it, and a large, large part of this came from Gabor's teaching of learning to become really gentle and curious of like, okay, well, what is this doing for me? Because I always looked at that as my, once I was fighting this thing, I was fighting it and then it would create the shame cycle. And so then to your point on shame, the shame would loop and it would keep, keep me deeper in it. And so I started to reframe a lot of this. And again, I was doing a lot of work with different therapies, trying different therapists, trying different somatic processes, doing all kinds of different things to learn it. But what I ultimately started to learn was like, oh, 
shame has actually been my friend. Shame is what has protected me since I was a little kid. And the shame in the porn, when I was a little kid, it wasn't safe to feel. So I learned as a little kid, oh, if I sneak away, it's the one time I have to actually be with myself. And, and if I'm with myself, I can feel my own emotions. I can control my emotional state. I feel safe. I'm, I'm co-regulating to this object with me. But then I grew up in an environment where sex was looked at as bad and wrong, is at least how I perceived that as a child watching my parents, which sure wasn't true, but that's how I perceived that to be. Um, and so I made my sexuality wrong. And that's where the shame came from. Like, oh, I'm doing this thing, but it's wrong. And so I'd linked up, I'm doing something bad, but in my exploration to understand why, and to look at this as a form of regulation and a form of protection, um, I started to get compassionately like, oh, this has been my ally since I was a little tiny kid and couldn't feel and didn't know how to express myself or communicate what I needed. So I just went there and I was a freeze and appeaser. I would freeze my own state, which is where the numbness comes from. And I'd support everybody else. And that's how I stayed avoidant of my own emotions. And so learning how to become really compassionate first allowed me to go in and feel what's there. Second, starting to take some of the pressure off, like, okay, I'm living over my means thinking if I just get one big win, then it solves it. So I had to say, restart, like restart from the ground up, start to live under my means, simplify my life, like remove all the layers of pressure. What's causing pressure, cut them and start, start fresh into this new place where I can relieve my nervous system from handling that pressure. So there's less pressure on the blowout valve, if you will, and then identify if this has been my primary form of regulation, let me allow myself to go into that and then just observe, like, what am I doing? And so I would just observe like, oh, I'm breathing. Oh, I'm, um, my body's getting warm. Oh, I'm, um, uh, when I have a release, I'm feeling so good. Or like, what, so just noticing, observing myself in a third person to go, okay, so what could I use to replace this in, in an area that allows me to feel my own emotions, allows me to heat up my nervous system, um, allows me to get that moment of bliss, which is essentially a avoidance of pain. Like for that brief moment, I'm not in pain. There's no anxiety. There's nothing in my body. So once I had that awareness, then I could start to say, okay, um, how do I start to do somatic-based practices to start to move that anxiety out of my body? How do I identify when it's there? And instead of going to my old coping mechanisms, whether it be getting extra busy in work, reaching out to help an extra 20 people, which was another avoidance strategy, um, how do I notice that or addictions, right? How do I become aware of it? Not shame myself, but reframe to go, uh, pain, not shame. So when I would recognize it instead of shaming, go, wait, wait, pause. I'm in pain right now. So how do I feel that pain and allow myself to be with that pain and find ways to move with it, which has been a really uncomfortable process. I mean, it's requiring, um, different somatic based therapies of like, um, leaning over, making noises like, like for 10 minutes of like grieving type noises and then sadness or anger or this weird shit will come out and allowing myself to go there. Oh, if I'm angry, take a tennis racket to the fucking bed and get into that anger and rage and then feel what's beneath it, right? If I'm feeling lonely, be with that loneliness or sadness if I'm feeling. So whatever those feelings are to actually allow myself to feel those, which feels really uncomfortable if you've hidden from those, it's so messy and it feels so almost humiliating would be the word that I would use. Cause it's so it's not in control. And I realized I wanted to be in control of that. So I have to surrender control and really save containers for myself to actually allow that to come. And then the irony is I recognized I linked up again, an object. If, I, if it wasn't safe to let's say attach to parents, which my parents are really good parents. It's just as a kid, for some reason I linked up, it wasn't safe for whatever reason. And I went to an object. And so how do, and again, when I first did this, I was angry at my parents when they have their own stuff and they're really good and they love me the best they could. So it's not them. It just was for whatever reason, the trauma in our lineage and the trauma that they had as a child, I linked up some of the moments I needed that love and support where they were dealing with their own trauma is when as a kid, I went and found another way to get my needs met and I linked to an object. So what I had to do is learn how to go back to myself instead of an object. And I'm still in that process. I'm in a four month feminine cleanse where I've taken a break from porn. I did a ceremony to release that and really honor and thank for, for all the years that supported me. And then also say, it's like, you're not serving me anymore. So it's time to let you go. So I had to 
honor that and then find all the ways to reaccess my feminine, which is what I'm learning in this process has been, I villainized my feminine. I made my feminine wrong. I made like, I had intense judgment on my feminine. And so now I'm going like, how do I re cause that's the part of me that's going to allow me to emote, right? These weird emotions. And then when I'm able to do it, even though it's really uncomfortable, I'm okay. So, so what I'm discovering is moving from an object like, oh, if I'm busy fucking, let's call it, or pursuing or hunting or chasing these external things is how I would regulate before. And then I was really offended if they work with me or they don't with work with me would affect my whole state. If they, if I feel loved and supported and needed, I'm okay. If I'm not, then my world's a mess. And so I, and so that's where the porn was safe is, oh, I can feel the same way. Anytime I go here, I can regulate myself, but I was still using an object. And now what I'm learning is how do I do that with me? How do I notice where I'm at? And it just recalls daily practices. Like I'm vigilant about twice a day. I do these practices. It's messy every time I have to carve out room in my schedule. Um, that and one other practice I've been doing, which is um, they're called karma, karma mudra practices. It's a form of Tibetan sexual practices essentially, but there it's a great book called the yoga of bliss. And it's practices where I'm doing different breath work and the breath work is essentially moving me into these areas, into the solar plexus, into the areas that I've avoided and learning how to move that energy. And so that's really what I'm currently at, because again, I think we're just a lot of times a couple steps in front of mm -hmm. the guys that we're serving or the men that we're serving, you know? And I think that's the thing is what's brought me the most peace is realizing like, oh, everybody doesn't have it all figured out. They're just a couple steps in front of me. And that makes me go, oh, I'm still okay. Like if I've, like I struggled with porn addiction for five years and I had the tools and I still couldn't do it. Right. So anybody that's struggling and this is a process, um, a couple steps that I learned just cause we're here is titration really helped. Like trying to just quit cold didn't work for me where it works for a lot of guys. What did work is slow titration off and understanding how my brain was wired for the dopamine hits. And I was actually losing focus and memory and depression states were coming from the porn, which I never realized before. That actually was the leverage. It wasn't the porn I wanted to solve, but it was that what's actually got me to move um, and realize it's from the vastness of what the dopamine our brain does is what creates that. So if I could titrate off and go slowly from the whole world of porn to like, you know, Instagram, okay, I can still watch Instagram and release but I'm limiting my exposure and I'm slowly titrating off to, and then changing your environment, right? Changing from whatever habit I had to do that, changing up the habits. So I still gave myself permission to go there, but I slowly moved the process to like different places, different focuses. And then I was able to like become aware and actually become aware of my thoughts and go, now I'm highly regulating my nervous system. So instead of needing this old regulation tool that doesn't really meet it, but it takes me out of pain for the moment. These new practices massively take me out of that. And so I'm, I'm overly regulated combined with slow titration. And then it just becomes a meditation practice, almost like, oh, in meditation, you have these fleeting thoughts. Do I follow the thoughts or do I come back to my meditation? It becomes the same thing. Like, oh, you see something that would normally, I would be gone and into a pornhole. And now it's like, oh, I just see it acknowledge that energy, like, wow, beautiful feminine energy. Um, and let me just control my focus and go back to my practice. And so just, I'm just sharing with guys, which I know you're on the same probably journey with it is like, Hey, be really gentle and compassionate with yourself. And usually the things that we're struggling most with, we're at war with ourselves. And if we can learn to be compassionate and that's what actually get curious, that's what starts to help us come back online. And then whatever's there, be with it. So if you feel numbness, be with the numbness. If you feel anxiety, be with the anxiety. If you feel like it's there for a reason and it's in our avoidance of that, which is really what creates the conflict. And there are practices that we really need to do that you start to learn what works for you. There's a bunch out there, but you start to learn like, oh, wait, this is a survival protocol for me. When you're, when you're initially building, it's like, if I don't do this, I fall back. And so the, one of the metaphors we use in K4 is there's a dragon. And you're, you know, you're fighting this initially, you're fighting the dragon. And then when you start to get to like, I'd say the phase that I'm at as I move from fighting to riding the dragon. But if I'm not vigilant, if I start to miss my practices, the dragon will start to come back. And so it, like it sneaks in. And so I've just learned like, cause even when I started this, it still came back a couple of times and I was like, oh, I'm still failing. But instead I was able to say, nope, like, where did I fail? Clean that up. Okay. Where else did I fail? Clean that up. Where else did I fail? Clean that up. And to the point now where I'm able to just go like, oh, okay, if I stay the course, 
um, now these practices are actually working. And so I just have to keep staying vigilant until it builds enough capacity where this isn't in my, in my awareness anymore, right? Because I've built enough. Cause I think that's really what we're doing. We're building capacity. We're building emotional capacity. We're building, which right now, some men listening, maybe just have no capacity. They haven't built their emotional capacity. So the release is all they have for capacity. But when you can build more capacity, that becomes like fast food versus like a nice Wagyu steak dinner where you're like, why would I choose the fast food if I can eat this every day? And it starts to, once you can experience that and feel it, that's when it starts to become an easier choice. But before it, you don't know that there's a steak dinner. So you're kind of caught in that. Yeah. But I know I said a lot, but I was, it seemed like a tied into, for me, the shame was really my porn mm. and, um, and that was my protector. And I think that's most important. What, what men need to hear is like, the shame is your protector. Like, what would it look like if you looked at your shame is how much it's protected you? How has it kept you safe? Like, how has it kept you um, able to feel your own emotions? And how do we give that a new role, right? So that it's not now keeping us imprisoned, but how can it move from like shame to like an indicator that you need to feel as an example, like, oh, instead of just feeling release and then shame, how do we move to go? Oh, I'm in pain. How do I need to start to feel what's going on and feel that pain be with my pain, right? Versus like trying to get it out or try to fix it. Yeah. There's a lot of shame too, isn't it? Around actually <clears throat> porn itself and giving it up and that it's bad, that it's wrong, that it's destroying your masculinity, all these sort of things. It's, and it's a lot of that's kind of surface level stuff. And you've, you've been talking about a lot of things there again, that, that resonates with me. And even as you said, they're thanking it for being part of your life and for serving you to a certain extent for a process in your life. And I've been reflecting back on, on the time where, my porn addiction had been amplified and at its worst. And I was going through an extremely traumatic experience where I was in a car accident when I was 18 and mm. I crashed into a car where a lady died on the scene and mm. carried it with me for 10 plus years of my life. And porn was my mm. escapism or porn was my way to feel or because I was avoiding all that, just like yourself, put in a box, got all in my life. Uh, but of course, um, you know, that, I, that box was on my, was on my back and it began to weigh me down over a long period of time and until it became too much, but porn was my re release valve. And I think it's something it's, when you talk about workaholism and, and the pressures that a lot of men put themselves under. And one thing you mentioned there was porn being a release of energy. So you're releasing this pressure because again, it becomes too overwhelming. And you talk then about, letting go of some of those pressures. So cutting back on your, on your work schedule, perhaps, and not taking on as, as, as many clients or not putting so many demands on yourself. And I'm thinking, fuck, that must've been a scary process because <laughs> you're having to actually open up space in your life. And perhaps a massive part of that was that you couldn't trust yourself with having space in your life because you knew if you had space, if you have time by yourself, you were going to go, one direction towards towards porn or towards alcohol or something that was let's call it destructive to a certain extent you know so yeah how scary was that move yeah i mean it, extremely scary and it felt humiliating and it felt like i was starting over however i had you know we, we've been teaching these maps for k4s our men's community and we teach these maps and that was what was helpful for me there's a great book called iron john and i highly recommend any man to read it and there's a story of this of the ashes and so what I was able to see is I was like, oh, wait, I'm not starting over, which would have felt humiliating. I'm actually moving up towards, because we, you know, in the story of Iron John, he moves from a prince to a king. And in his journey, he's in an ashes phase where he intentionally shovels ashes. And when he's shoveling ashes, he does it with humility. He does it with grace. Um, and he's shoveling ashes. What somebody could look at that as a starting over phase, or they could look at it like I'm humbly on my way moving forward. And, and so luckily I was able to see it and go, oh, I know this is the right way. Um, I've just been scared to go here up until now. And so there was definitely an ego break. There was an ego shatter. There was a, a, a surrender of all that, but I knew, and initially it was really hard because I actually moved home with my parents. I moved back home at 40, right. And moved back home and was like, because I knew like, and granted we were in COVID, so I wasn't leaving the house and things were a little bit. And I was like, 
why don't I move back home and why don't I help them out? And while I'm doing it, I had to rebuild my, cause I got hit really hard by COVID is how it happened is I, I was doing all retreats and live events and then COVID happened and my business basically stopped. And then I took out a loan from the government and wasn't paying, wasn't listening. I was still like, I'll find a way, I'll find a way. And then the cost of living, I was living in LA, I was under and I wasn't looking at it. I was avoiding it. And so I had to have like a moment where I'm like, this isn't working and I have to surrender my place on the water and by the beach. I have to surrender my car. I have to surrender what this lifestyle because this isn't actually working me towards building my kingdom. Like I'm just living a false story that I think if I create enough pressure, I'll eventually get there. But what if I don't? Like what, like how do I rebuild a story where I get there no matter what? That to me is, so I had to make the uncomfortable decision. I got rid of my vehicle. Um, I was able to move back home and help them. And it was a blessing because my dad got sick and I ended up taking care of my dad. And so there was a, you know, kind of how things happened, but I had to rebuild. And then I moved into a tiny little room, which was my office in my room. And in that stage, it was really hard. And I, I got rid of a car. They had my brother's old car, which is like a 25 year old vehicle. And so I'd drive that around and I was grateful to have a vehicle. And I remember like, at first I'd pull up to the gym and there'd be big trucks and all kinds of shit that I would be feeling like little inadequate at first. And then after a while I kept doing it and I was like, wait a second, but I'm, I'm getting out of debt. I'm rebuilding my savings. Like I'm doing what I need to do to take care of me. And so, because I, I, I could see that clearly, like I'm going to change my whole life. And I really did focus on my body. That was when I really was like, all right, how do I say, what are the areas I've been bitching and whining, complaining about? And how do I change those? Like stop. And so I was like, okay, I, I feel really out of control right now in every area of my life. So what can I control? I was like, I control what I put in my body. I control how hard I work out of the gym. And so that's when I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to transform my health. I'd gotten a little overweight because of COVID. And I was like, this is all changing. And so because of that, I got in really good shape, transformed my body, um, felt really good, paid off a ton of debt, rebuilt myself up, rebuilt my savings up. So I made massive progress, rebuilt all my businesses online. And now they're built to scale. Like I did in that one year I was at their house, I transformed my business, my money, my body. And I did a lot of deep therapy work on my relationship house. This is when I was doing lots of deep therapy, really looking at myself, doing really hard work on it. And so I came out of that and then bought a car, moved into my own space. Like now I'm on trajectory to on a whole nother trajectory, but I had to move to the asset phase and create a lot of spaciousness. And I also realized like I'd gotten out of debt twice. Like I was in a bunch of debt, claimed the bankruptcy, got out of it, had 150 grand in the bank and literally was back there in the next year and a half. Because my old strategy was like that desire to create and to be successful. I literally created all these projects at the same time and spent all my funds because of that anxious, unconscious, anxious desire to create and to build and to feel adequate. I didn't realize that I did the same pattern. And so when I caught myself there again, I'm like, never again, this is a pattern. This is another coping strategy. Like, no, I'm now going to follow a set of boundaries and I'm going to live under my means and I'm going to build my kingdom and I'm going to stop. I, I have the power to do this. I'm responsible. So I'm going to take control and responsibility and, and do this differently. And so I think that was where a deeper level of integration came on a deeper level of, of, and again, I was still in porn at that phase initially, but I was rebuilding. I was making progress. I was starting to develop compassion and understand where it came from. And now I'm in that next level of trajectory where it's like, I'm learning where I would typically go to the porn. If I'm able to lean in and do my work, I get a whole nother level of power. Like it's like, like, I feel like a different human. It's almost like you're a different level of integration, different level of power, different level, because this old thing that was stopping me almost deflating. Uh, another, another thing I realized something that was deflating me before where I would end up like deflated. Um, I now was getting empowered to create and then what happened is in the spaciousness in, let's say, plugging the holes that I was releasing all the time in um, and actually using practices to revitalize my body. What's happened now is I'm rebuilding my brand. I'm finishing my documentary. I'm scaling my businesses. Like everything is transforming because I have this energy in this. And that's where it really goes. It goes into like Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich transmutation, which I'd read about. I'd even done some multi-orgasmic stuff, but I, I didn't, I didn't ever link up porn in that. I just linked it up in relationships. So now I'm realizing cultivation and actually removing the external validation. If you remove all external validation, which is to me what that was, I was looking for external 
validation and I'm able to get it through myself, what ends up happening is now I have this energy in that I'd say that feminine energy, which I think I was angry at myself and my feminine. Now that I'm rebuilding the relationship, I think that's what creates wealth. I think that's what actually creates spaciousness for creative energy. And that creative energy is like, oh, how do I give my gifts and my talents? And how do I serve at a higher level? How do I give back at a deeper level? So I think initially it's really uncomfortable. It's really scary. Um, But if one, we need community, super important. If we have tribe to support us and to remind us we're doing the ashes work, sometimes they can see it when we can't. Um, And to be accountable to like, hey, continue to do your work, keep us focused on track. Like without that accountability, I've had a bunch of accountability. I may have crumbled on my own, but I had support. I had coaches, I had therapists, I had men's groups. Like I had a lot of support. So it's really critical that guys are listening, like get in a men's group, get in a community, get with somebody that you're working on this with so that you can do it together because honor goes far more than like, we'll do so much more for others. And so I was doing it for them, but I was actually getting better in my life for them. And it's a counterintuitive process, right? I don't want to fail them with my commitments. And so uh, we need allies. We need allies to make it through the abyss. We can't do it on our own. And men so need, that was another big one. Men need men for sure. Yeah. And it's uh, that's a massive part of your work right now, isn't it? So yeah. tell us a little bit about your men's work and your men's group and what's involved. And of course, where the listeners can reach out to you and, and get involved as well. Yep. So um, I have a couple of different things. I have uh, K4 Men's Work, which is a men's community um, and we teach maps and tools and an honor-based community and initiation. Um, and it, we guys enter through a 13 week rite of passage. We walk them through that's online. And then we move into an ongoing community where we do events and retreats and goal setting and continually focused on building. It's the goal is to make better men. I have uh, valor, which is focused on fire, police, veterans, more of the warrior based community, nurses, doctors, similar frameworks, but they're built for warrior culture. Um, and then I'm actually starting to move into doing some work with women, which I haven't done in a decade um, and doing some one-on-one work and with both men and women that are just wanting more deep one-on-one work that want to go deep on themselves. And that's kind of a mixture of deep, deep embedding of the emotional resilience tools and a lot of somatic work and a lot of somatic based practices, mm-hmm. but all that's at my website, just joshuamichaelwinner.com. Yeah, definitely going to check it out. I'm just, uh, just curious, can you get there? with your mind alone or does then do you also need to go through the process of the body and the somatic healing because and i'm asking this for myself ultimately because i've gone through the process of the mind i've been through counselors and therapists and i still see a psychologist every single week i have my journaling practice and that's been a practice in my life over the last two and a half years and serves me serves me really well i do a lot of grounding as well and i'm curious for myself, am I missing a link here? For I'll speak to me personally. I think everybody's a little different. Um, so you, and it depends on what season you're in, right? Where you're being called. So I definitely would track like where you're called really kind of tells you the next thing that you're ready for. But to me, the somatic based work is what I needed because in the talk, my nervous system was so like, I cannot talk myself. And, um, and my, my protective layers are to understand the world through maps and tools. So it was hard for me to relate to people because I would think I know more than them. And so when I would get into a talk room, like it's really hard for somebody to challenge me because I've studied so much and I've researched so much. So like for me, it was helpful, but I didn't really move the needle. What's moved the needle more than anything is the somatic work because I, I just needed somebody to be there with me. Yeah. And I'm really intuitive, but I needed somebody to witness and to walk with me as I felt and to be seen and witnessed in some of the messy parts and to actually be able to help me walk into the parts of my body I couldn't walk into. So Mm -hmm. to me, the somatic based practices are um, a game changer for me. That's, I I recently had somebody said, what's one of your biggest regrets? And I'd said, I wish I would have gotten to the somatic, somatic based work years ago, because that's really what's moved the needle for me is learning how to feel those parts of my body that I couldn't feel before, because my brain's done enough work to know what's happening. Um, but my body, once you experience it, it's a different, Mm. it's like the issues are stored in the tissues. So I think everybody's a little bit different. What I find in the somatic is it's more unconscious work and I've forgotten most of my childhood. And I think that's the part that's really difficult is when somebody asks me questions, I have a lot of black 
like blank areas. Mm -hmm. But when I'm doing somatic work, you go into like, let's say there's tension in the chest and you go feel that tension in the chest. And then it's like, when was the first time you experienced this tension? The body takes you to an unconscious place where that memory happened and you're able to work on, okay, well, this memory happened, describe this to me. And you can do parts work where you're the child and you can, so you're still doing, let's call it therapy. Um, but you're doing it through almost an, un my experience of it is you're doing it through an unconscious place of the body sensations and the body takes you to experiences. And then you can look at that experience and go and almost talk to your inner child and go, okay, well, what was happening here? What, what was your belief around this? And then you can understand more perspective of that part of you. And then you, as an adult, you can come and say, well, is this true? Or what's actually the truth? You didn't get your needs. So you can actually work on which a traditional therapy is doing. They're trying to uncover hidden beliefs. They're trying to un unconsciously reorient it, reorientate it. But what I've, I guess my understanding of, or how I look at it is in the amygdala, the part of the brain where a lot of trauma is stored, um, talk therapy is really helpful to reorganize timeline events, restructure things. And if it's sometimes not in order, just the reorganization re-puts it back into the part of the brain that stores memory. So that's where I see it be very useful is retelling time. And I've seen guys just retelling the timeline of their life. Like that's what they needed. And they're like, oh, like I just, I didn't, I had nobody ever heard my story. I never got to be witnessed and telling the things that I went through. And then other guys, um, like for me, I don't have, it's harder to tell a timeline because I don't have a lot of memory. The somatic based work is allowing myself to go in and identify what's still in there and then feel and have compassionate for the parts of myself that I can't reach consciously. So it's unconscious work. And that's, that's why I really relate to it really well. So it works really well for me. Cool. Very interesting. Yeah. I had Dr. Scott Lyons on as well a few months ago who actually conducts the somatic based therapy as well. I'm not too, not too sure if, if you're familiar with him, but yeah, like right now I'm, I'm, I'm in a good place. I've definitely made a lot of progress and it's only really over the last six months, I would say that I've actually began to become a lot more compassionate towards myself, which is, which, which for me has been the final piece of the, of the whole process. So, um, but yeah, that, that requires humility and maybe like yourself, my ego was getting the way. And again, ego is a protective mechanism and yeah, it got to go beyond that to delve into humility and to really make some significant progress. So yeah, thanks so much, Joshua. Just remind us again where to where we can find you and uh, yep. how we can reach out. <laughs> Just joshuamichaelwenner.com or joshuamichaelwenner or Facebook, Instagram. It's the same everywhere around. Nice so, well, the links will pleasure. Yeah, the links will be below in the show notes there. So go check them out. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your stories and incredible insight. So uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on, Gavin. So, so nice chatting with you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Warrior Podcast. If this episode has added value to your life, please share this episode on your social media platforms so that others too can gain the insight, information, and inspiration that they need in order to move forward in their lives. For the time being, stay strong and keep fighting the good fight.